Well, you can't see stress, but man, is it real. You sure can feel it, too. What if there was a medicine out there, a treatment for stress, anxiety, headaches, depression, even heart disease? Well, guess what? There is. But it wasn't invented in a pharmaceutical lab. In fact, we can thank the Beatles for the fact that we even know anything about it. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Yeah, on this program, you're going to meet the most experienced and sought-after teacher of transcendental meditation in the country, and, you know, maybe even the world. And you'll learn that by setting aside just a little bit of time every day, you can release your burdens, and by doing so, you can create a pathway towards greater health and longevity. Also, we're going to dip into our archives to listen to a conversation we had with one of the most creative comic book minds ever. This is the guy who helped launch Marvel Comics and, you know, by extension, really, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He created characters like the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. It's a Growing Boulder classic interview with the legendary Stan Lee. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. It's time for Growing Boulder. As you should know by now, we believe that there never will be any life-transforming elixir any magic pond, or even any genetic therapy that can deliver quality of life. We have to learn to celebrate the blessing of extra years. We have to learn how to improve our health span and really not focus fully on our lifespan. If extra years, folks, don't mean extra joy, if they don't mean extra passion, extra purpose, then, then you know, my question is, what the heck is the point? We've got to learn to extract joy from life's simple pleasures. Uh, it's trite but true. Happiness is a choice, and we have to take responsibility for our health and well-being. And sometimes the most important action that we can all take is, is kind of really no action at all. Our guest today is one of the world's most renowned teachers and advocates for transcendental meditation. And, and, and please, don't stop listening because of what you think TM is or or what it isn't, or because you think that you can't learn it, or maybe it requires some sort of spiritual belief system that you have to buy into. What you learn today, if you're willing to act upon it, can help reduce your stress, it can improve your sleep, increase your energy, your creativity, your focus, and a whole lot more. Now, his name is Bob Roth, and I think you could argue pretty convincingly that he is the GOAT, the Michael Jordan of Transcendental Meditation. In fact, over the past 50 years, he has taught TM to many thousands including billionaire CEOs and Hollywood celebrities. He is the author of the definitive book on the subject, the New York Times bestseller, Strength in Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation. He's also the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, where he's helped provide TM scholarships to over a million urban youth, to veterans who suffer from post-traumatic stress, uh, to women and children who are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, and to healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. He directs the Center for Resilience, which brings meditation to Fortune 100 companies, to government, military, and community service organizations. He is the host of the iHeartRadio podcast, Stay Calm with Bob Roth, and also the Sirius XM radio show, Success Without Stress. 
He talks about the science of meditation to industry leaders all over the world, and I'm talking major gatherings, things like Zugel Zeitgeist, Aspen Ideas Festival, Wisdom 2.0, Summit, Global Wellness Summit, and a whole lot more. He is one busy fellow, and today we're thrilled to have him as our own for just a little bit. His name is Bob Roth once again. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, and it's wonderful to be on your show, and that was an extraordinarily long introduction, but I, I appreciate I appreciate being on your show a lot, and I appreciate you and your perspective. Just that opening comments about what we need just encapsulated as human beings encapsulated the message of our time. I think it encapsulated the message of our time. Thank you for what you said. You know, we look at life through, you know, a, a prism of passion and purpose and possibility, not simply loss and limitation. You know, I always say we don't deny the reality of our mortality. I mean, that would be ridiculous. But so much more is possible. And, and what you do, what you teach people is, is one of the tools we can all use. So if you will, sir, and I know you can speak at a very high level about this, but can we start with the basics? What is TM? And maybe as importantly, what is is it not? So it's a wonderful question. And I want to begin by just reassuring your audience, skeptics among you. And I myself am a skeptic by nature, a skeptical person. I mean, I'm not a cynic that I never get out of bed, but I, I love things to be, I love big ideas, but I like them to be based in reality and science. <laughs> and I just want to make this point that when we're talking about meditate, transcendental meditation or meditation, we're just there are many different types, but the one I teach, we're just talking about accessing a level of quiet and calm that every human being already has deep within the mind. That's an important point. It's not something we have to believe in, fabricate, visualize. The hypothesis is, Mark, is that every human being, by virtue of being human, has a level deep within now, right now, where the mind is calm and steady and clear and alert. Like an ocean has choppy waves on the surface, but is silent at its depth. Mind, by analogy, is the same. Surface of the mind, you could call it the monkey mind or the gotta, gotta, gotta. I call it the gotta, gotta, gotta mind. I gotta do this and I gotta call him and I gotta call her and I gotta make a list, gotta find all the gottas that we all have. And it's a natural human desire to say, I'd like just no matter what, some inner calm, some inner equanimity, some inner silence and inner wakefulness. And the operative word there is inner. And the question is, is there such a thing as an inner? And if so, how do we get there? So different meditations try to create calm in different ways. I'm answering the second, your second question first. There's some types of meditation that um, tell you to clear your mind of thoughts, force out thoughts. It's called a focused attention. It, it's like the idea would be you have, want to have a calm ocean, Mark. What disrupts a calm ocean? Waves. So stop waves and you have a calm ocean. If you want to have a, a calm mind, what disrupts a calm mind? Thoughts. So stop thoughts. You have a calm mind. <laughs> Impossible in both situations, pretty much. Um, another type of meditation is called open monitoring or mindfulness. And that teaches us to live in the moment. Don't be disturbed about something that may have happened five years ago today. Don't be back there dispassionately observe, learn to, this is a mindfulness meditation, dispassionately observe your thoughts, your moods, your feelings. It's like watching the waves rise and fall and not getting too worked up about either. Transcendental meditation says thoughts, all that stuff on the surface of the ocean are on the surface of the ocean. 
but the ocean has this vertical dimension. And deep within the ocean is, as I said, a level where the ocean is by its nature, calm, settled, alert. No, not alert, but calm and settled. Analogous to the mind. Surface of the mind, as I said, is that turbulent, so much going on in our lives, so much pressure, worried about our son or daughter or mother or grandmother or something at work or my job, this, that. Plus, there's that internal questions we have. I, I've got all this success. I'm not enjoying it. I'm too stressed, anxious to enjoy my family, to enjoy the work I've done. So transcendental meditation gives access to that field that lies within everyone in the most simplest and effortless way. If it wasn't called transcendental meditation, it was called technique X. You say, well, fine, whatever. Meditation and transcendental can be sort of a little bit strange, but so forget vocabulary. This is a technique that just gives effortless access to that innermost calm level of the mind. And I'll stop here if you have questions, and later I can talk about some of the research that documents that. Well, you know, that was actually one of my next questions. So so before we talk about what you're able to share with us about technique that, that allows us to access that depth, assuming that we can get there, Bob, you know, what does research show? You know, how does it impact either our psychological or our physiological well-being? Well, that's a wonderful question. You know, it wasn't, it was only about 10 or 15 years ago that we take it for granted now. You say, well, there's mind-body medicine or an athlete visualizes hitting 10 for 100 free throws in a row or, you know, hitting a home run is visualization. There's that notion, that understanding now that mind and body are not separate. There's not a door for the mind. You know, you have something, you see something horrific, and then there's a door that maybe gets into your body. It's a continuum. Whatever you see impacts your body, positive or negative. Whatever is happening to your body impacts your mind, positive or negative. So if during transcendental meditation, the words I just said, if they're just a bunch of hoo-ha, then it's not going to show up in my body. It's just going to be some, you know, make-believe. But if it's real, if it's substantive, then we're going to see it in the way my brain functions, digestive system functions, nervous system functions, respiratory system functions, my whole body, because it's a continuum. And what they see in the last 40 years of scientific research on transcendental meditation, conducted at all the top hospitals and medical centers and published in American Medical Association journals and all those what they find is that during this simple little 15, 20-minute process, your body gains a state of rest, in many regards, Mark, deeper than what you get after five and a half or six hours of sleep. And that's research done at Harvard and published in Science Magazine. That deep state of rest, you've ever heard of cortisol? Mm -hmm. Cortisol is a stress hormone. That's when we're anxious. We need a little bit of cortisol to get up in the morning, but we make it in just gallons too much life, modern life. Cortisol levels weaken the immune system. So if a person is stressed, then they get sick more often. It also floods the hippocampus in the brain so we can't think as well. And over time, it leads to cognitive difficulties. A good night's sleep will drop cortisol levels by 10%. 20, 15, 20 minutes of transcendental meditation drops cortisol levels by 30 to 40%. And nothing else does that. And the American Heart Association and the Department of Defense have given 30 plus million dollars to study the effects of TM for its benefits for reducing high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, 
post-traumatic stress among soldiers. So there's a huge, con- and it changes the way it in- makes the brain work together in a more uh, integrated way. So our memory improves, our problem solving improves, a huge constellation of changes. And I think within a couple years, it, TM is going to be offered in healthcare um, insurance companies because of the documented benefits that it has to all these concerns. Offering meditation through health care insurance? Well, that'd be a game changer for mental health in this country, wouldn't it? And that's just the beginning. Up next, Mark and Bob Roth continue the conversation on transcendental meditation. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health Well 65 Plus. Primary care designed for those on Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans featuring 30 to 60 minute appointments and 24 hour care team access from a nationally renowned network. Advent Health Well 65 Plus. Primary care that gets better with age. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer, and we're in the middle right now of a fascinating conversation between Mark Middleton and the man considered to be the father of transcendental meditation in America, Bob Roth. So let's get back to it. Here's Mark. You know, Bob, I first learned about transcendental meditation when I was in college back in the early 70s. And, you know, that was you were you were there. You know, what the early 70s were like, uh, it's easy for a lot of people, I think, to think that there is some sort of connection between transcendental meditation and, uh, you know, I don't know, Timothy Leary and, and, and psychedelics and, and, and yeah, exactly. And religion and everything else. But this is this doesn't have anything to do with any of that, does it? No. The thing is, it uh, TM was introduced in the late 1950s and 1960s, and the first or breakthrough on it, and it you know got the Beatles and all these different people were uh, learning it, and so the press, in their glorious way, just sort of lumped it all together. But it was beginning in the 1970s, first the first research that came out, as I said, at Harvard Medical School and UCLA Medical School, and then the publication, and then the 80s, and more and more research. Along with, Mark, the fact, and no one paid attention, but then the problems of stress started getting greater and greater and greater and greater. And stress became toxic stress for so many of us. And toxic stress became what they call complex PTSD. And PTSD is what happens to a a soldier in war, but now it's a person just living under enormous pressure, financial pressure or social or economic, I mean, political pressure, whatever, that we're starting to experience PTSD. So the problems of these mental health issues got greater and greater. The realization that modern medicine had no magic pill to, we don't even know what causes depression. I mean, there's gazillions of people are taking antidepressive medication and the researchers just come out saying that it's probably not targeting a cause. So what are we going to do? Problem is great. Modern medicine doesn't have a particular solution. I'm not opposed to medicine, obviously, but it's not the, you know, you're going to take a pill for depression, a pill for anxiety, a pill for constipation, a pill for insomnia, a pill for memory. You just like become a walking medicine cabinet. And then you, along with that, you have this research coming out on meditation in general and specifically transcendental meditation is starting to flip. 
people don't want to necessarily say, I'm going to take pills with side effects for the rest of my life only. And so brave souls from the 70s and 80s who are still around and then doing the research and then younger people coming along saying, I'm not opposed to meditation. That's not a scary word for me. Uh, I'm open to anything that can work if you show me the research. And now what we have is hospitals offering TM to their doctors and nurses. And we work a lot with, um, we teach veterans with PTSD to meditate for free. We work with police and firefighters. We work with women who are survivors of domestic violence. And we work mainly with just regular folk like the rest of us who are just trying to deal with everyday demands. And it seems like I, I'm hoping, and I know you'll tell me that the people that using are using TM is growing because, as you mentioned, Bob, uh, the need is growing. Uh, the, the pandemic, with all the research, everybody's anxious. Uh, suicide levels are up. We've had a two-year decline in life expectancy, the largest two-year drop in over 100 years. Uh, you know, people are dying from drug overdoses. It seems like we need it more than ever. And then when you tie in, you know, something that seems totally disparate from that, but, you know, this TikTok world that we live in, and I have to tell you, I, I spend more time on TikTok than I want to, but we all have these little squirrel mindsets right now where we just see little blips of thing and uh it, i it's hard to slow down it's hard to relax these days i think nature it's like there was a lot of disease and infection and uh louis pasteur comes along and and then we we develop antibiotics and medicines become the way to address physical disease now we come across another a mental health issue which is tied to physical Again, insomnia, anxiety, all these different things. So where is that solution going to come from? I mean, antibiotics came out of its own tradition of herbal medicines and things like that from the past. I feel that when it comes to mental health, it's not a, an infection in the arm. It's not a virus in the lungs or a bacteria that gets into your a wound in your knee. It's a lot of it is the world has gotten simply too intense. The human nervous system was not designed, as it is waking, dreaming, sleeping, to handle the degree of pressure, unrelenting pressure on this. And the way it breaks out, the way it shows up, is not that there's you know pus in my leg where the cut was. It shows up in, I can't sleep. It shows up in, I'm anxious all the time. It shows up in suicidal tendencies. It shows up in substance abuse. That's the expression of it. And I think the reason, and you talked about it, Mark, is we don't have a way to help the body heal itself. And the body heals itself best under stress through something as simple as rest. And the deeper the rest, the better, because when the system can settle down to a deep state of rest, then the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight response, it can calm down. Your cortisol levels can come down. The amygdala, which is your emotional fear reactivity center, can calm down. All happens through transcendental meditation. doesn't happen through a pill. So I think you're going to see a, tr a transition where society is going to have to build in the workforce corporations, and it's already starting to happen. Here's a meditation room, or if you want to call it a quiet time room, take 20 minutes at the end of the day before you go home to be with your family and decompress and reduce the cortisol levels 
and be more balanced. So I think what this is forcing is restoring balance in life because we've gone way overboard when it comes to activity and we get addicted to it. And now we need to just, we don't need to become recluses, monks. We just need to have balance. We're talking with Bob Roth uh, about transcendental meditation, which is kind of like talking to Albert Einstein about the theory of relativity, <laughs> although a whole lot, a whole lot easier. Really I'm pushing it a whole lot easier to understand. All right, so let's talk about, you know, because I'm confused. Do I, do I need a one-on-one -on -one teacher to learn how to uh, engage in, in TM? Can I learn it online? We have all heard about a mantra. How does it work? What do we need to do to get started? There are gazillions of meditation. The word meditation just means thinking. Just means, so you can have equine meditation, which is meditate while you're, or walking meditation, and just thinking while you're walking thinking while you're horseback riding, mindfulness meditation where you're watching your thoughts, transcendental meditation, transcend, big fancy word, it just means to settle down. And in the dictionary it says to go beyond ordinary human limitations. Are you a sports guy? Do you like sports? I do, yeah. I, I was a sportscaster for years, uh, and I compete in two different sports. So we love transcendent moments watching sports when something just, you know, you see an athlete, just does something that just goes, oh my gosh. We love those. We love going to a concert. Oh, just surprise. Oh my gosh. Or holding a newborn child, those moments that just break boundaries. And inside is a level where the mind is not bound. It's not, uh, it's expanded. It's that, that transcendent level of thinking that, again, I want to emphasize just me. It's not going someplace. It's just me. So to access that, to settle down and experience that, it does take a teacher who's trained to give you what's called a mantra. It's a fancy word. It just means sound or it's a word. It's a couple syllables and has no meaning associated with it. And then the teacher will give you that sound one-to-one -one, so you're not with a group and then teach you how to use it properly. And that, while easy, is so subtle because we're learning how to Give the attention of the mind an inward direction. Instead of, like you teach a child how to dive, you say, honey, take the correct angle, and then gravity takes over. So if I were to teach you TM or another certified teacher were to teach you TM, it's not like a little quick fix, like, you know, pop up an Advil. Um, and it's also not complicated. It does take human-to-human -human instruction to be sure you're doing it right. If people don't want the, to do that, you know, they can do something online, but it doesn't have nearly the same effect. And we've tried doing stuff online and it just doesn't work. You, you want to be with the person and they have a question and then, and then you answer it and you have a question and you answer it. Like having a mentor. If you want to learn how to play piano, you can learn yourself or you can have someone come in and give you some tips or to become a great swimmer like you are and were. Um, it helps to have a, a mentor. And with TM, just an hour a day over four days and then you're done. So, so where do we find that mentor? How do we learn more and, and how do we get connected with somebody? Go to tm.org. Transcendental Meditation is a nonprofit educational organization, tm.org. And you can pull down a window that will say, oh, I live in El Paso. Where do you live? Uh, I live in Central Florida, Orlando. Orlando. So you look Orlando and you find out where there's a teacher there. And then you can call up the teacher and say, I heard this guy talking about TM, he had this long-winded biography. <laughs> and, and, then, um, and then you can ask some questions and you can find out more. Um, people, 
I do want to say it's a nonprofit organization. There is a course fee that's asked, but it's income-based. So if a person has money to pay, they can do, but if a person doesn't have the money, then they pay, you know, less or nothing. I full disclosure transparency. I, I'm not normally a name dropper, Bob, but when I call someone here in Central Florida and tell them uh, that I want to learn, I, I, I think that I'm going to say I was chatting with my buddy Bob Roth, uh, and he suggested that I reach out to you. Is that going to be okay? As a matter of fact, uh, tell me who you call, and then I'll I'll say <laughs> Mark, and he'll say, "Whoa, geez." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, um. You know, I, I got to ask you about um, your work with the nonprofit David Lynch Foundation and how you got hooked up with David, because talk about a couple of cool dudes hanging out. And folks, if you don't know, uh, David Lynch is the renowned director and screenwriter of Twin Peaks and, and the original Dune, which I loved. Critics might not have, but Mulholland Drive, Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, on and on. How did you You're get hooked? A You're a fan. Uh, I am a fan. So how did you get hooked up with him and, and what do you guys do together? Well, I've been teaching this for a million, for 50 years and seeing the arc of people never wanting to talk about meditation and now talking about it all the time. And David had been meditating for 50 years also, but all the time, Mark, I kept, my dad was a world war II veteran and he was really injured during the war. And I always thought that, boy, this meditation could be really good to bring it to veterans. And my mom was a school teacher and she worked at times in under-resourced schools in the, in Oakland and I'm in San Francisco Bay area. So I always had this desire to bring this to some, we call vulnerable populations as well as everyone else, you know, working general motors and Apple. And for that, I knew we needed to uh, start a foundation so we could raise some money so we could pay teachers to go into these communities and teach. So David uh, and I had just crossed paths and we were friends and I knew that he'd been meditating since 1973. And in, 2005, I said, David, you want to start a foundation to raise money to bring this to these people? And he said, fine, but I don't think he ever thought initially it was going to turn into something as big as it did. So he's a, a brilliant filmmaker with a, a heart of gold, actually. And so we started the foundation in 2005 to raise funds and to implement programs in these different populations that are underserved. And it's been very satisfying. We've taught now a million kids and veterans and public school teachers. And right now there's a big focus on doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers working in um, emergency departments and ICU departments of hospitals. So yeah, it's going very satisfying. Well, so many people around the world have been blessed by the work that you're doing with David Lynch. Uh, you know, so so thank you for that. And and I always feel remiss if I forget to ask somebody like you, you know, just kind of a big brain thinker. Uh, you know, what's the takeaway? What's the moral of the story? And, and maybe it doesn't have to have anything to do with, with, with TM. Just in general, Bob, you know, what have you learned about life that, that, that you, you feel like we all should know and understand? Life through this. You, you know, you get from A to B in a car. You take good care of your car so it doesn't break down as you're as you're traveling. We we put so much time and attention in car. But this is our car. The brain, the nervous system, my heart. We have to take care of it, Mark. And it's not just pablum, that's just like not new age thinking. It's a reality. And the longer we don't take care of it, then the more grievous and problematic that vehicle, whether it's a car, if we don't take care of it, or our body, brain, and more the end of life, an end of life could come sooner. 
So I don't mean to be dire here, but I would just like to say you have to prioritize yourself a little bit. We take care of so many other people all the time. They depend on us for so much. And we just think we're just going to grind it out. We're going to grind it out. We're going to, and then in 20 years, I'm going to retire. And ain't the truth. That doesn't work that way. It's not like your body waits for you to retire. So one person even said, I don't have 20 minutes to meditate to do TM. And I said, it's 1, 000, there's 1,440 minutes in our day. You don't have a few minutes to do what I was just talking about. You're going to be more loving with your family. You're going to be more effective and productive at work. And you're going to enjoy your life more. And it's not just meditation. Pick the foods that are healthier for you. Don't put in cruddy gas into your tank. Put in good gas. Don't put cruddy food into your body. Put in good, help your body out. So that would be my takeaway. Prioritize yourself, just even a little. Great takeaway, folks. We see it all the time, and, and, and Bob Roth exudes it. You know, it, it's passion and, and purpose that, that kind of fuel the life force as we get older. And this is a guy who's got plenty of both. Uh, you know, check him out. You can learn more about Bob and his work on his website. It's meditationbob.com. And, uh, and as he mentioned, you can learn more about Transcendental Meditation itself at tm.org. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for your time. It uh, was an honor uh, and, and a lot of fun to chat with you. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. Really loved it. You're great. You are great. You're the Einstein of interviewers. Up next, a legend, an icon, and a visionary all rolled into one. The man who brought comic book characters to the forefront. The creator of Spider-Man, Iron Man, Hawk, and many others. It's a Growing Boulder classic interview with the great Stan Lee. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. Do you have any favorite comic book heroes? Well, it turns out that the greatest wasn't a comic book character at all. It's probably Stan Lee, the guy who created many of the best. Lee died back in 2018 at the age of 95. But he joined Bill and me right here on Growing Boulder to offer his insights on aging and the fact that he loved every minute of his life. It was a powerful message then and it really still is today. So let's listen again. Here's our Growing Boulder classic interview with Stan Lee. It's a lot of fun, I must admit. I've never had a better time. You know, Stan, it is always interesting to hear the, you, the, someone's voice for the first time on this radio show. We get people on here like you in their mid-80s, and invariably when they step up to the mic, you guys have more energy. Uh, energy is not an age-related thing. I mean, it sounds like you have as much passion for life as you ever did. Well, maybe more, because as as you get older, you begin to appreciate it more and more. Wow. You know, big star now, everybody hears your name and they know what you did, but this didn't happen overnight at all for you, did it? No, it took maybe a half a century or so. <laughs> and that's true. I, I guess I'm a slow starter. 
But boy, is it ever rolling now. Let's go back into the day. You know, it's kind of the, the superhero genre, if you will, was was revived in the late 50s when baby boomers like Bill and I were kids. And, and you're the guy, along with the help of a couple of pretty talented artists, created superheroes that had personal flaws. You know, guys with bad tempers, and they were vain, and they were greed. Uh, Just like us when we were kids. Yeah. And maybe first and foremost, the Fantastic Four. What led you in that direction, Stan? Why did you want to make people that are superheroes that were flawed? Well, I, I wanted to make them like me. And I, for years, I was writing just regular superheroes, the kind my publisher wanted me to. And after a while, I got really tired of it. I said, why not make them real people? And real people are not perfect, you know, with the possible exception of myself. <laughs> and um, I figured that they occasionally have to, they have money problems, they have personal problems, they have romantic problems, and I thought it would be fun, even if people had superpowers, to treat them as though they're normal people who happen to have superpowers, but they still are um, plagued by the ills that flesh is heir to. And you know that one decision, Stan, is what made everything that's happening now possible because you created great, you gave the opportunity for great storytelling by adding that element to the superheroes because after a while, you know, it's the same story over and over again. But this way, there, there's no end to where you can take these guys. The funny thing is, I, I don't know that I even deserve that much credit for it because it's such an obvious thing to do. It's what any writer does in any good book. He, he makes. He tries to make his characters real. He tries to give them problems to overcome, and that's what makes it interesting to read about them. Boy, you know, one of the lessons that we learned doing this radio show from those like you who have been successful is that many times to be successful, you've got to be a bit of a rule breaker, and you were never afraid to do that. And I think specifically what I want to talk about now is uh, back in the day, the Comics Code Authority wouldn't allow any depictions of drug use, even in an anti-drug theme. You didn't like that. You wrote an issue of Spider-Man in which Harry Osborn had a bad LSD trip. I mean, it was a good message, so you defied the authority and published it without their seal, didn't you? Well, you know what happened? I had received a letter from the Office of Health, Education, and Welfare in Washington, and they said, recognizing the influence of Marvel Comics with young people, they thought it would be great if I could do an anti-drug story. So I did. In fact, I liked it so much, I extended it over three issues. But we had to send those issues to the Comics Code Authority, which at that time sort of censored the books and made sure they were fit for young children. So they sent the books back to us as rejected. They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs. So I called them and I said, look, we're not telling kids to take drugs. This is an anti-drug story. It was requested by a Washington agency. Now, sorry, we still won't give you the seal of approval. So we just published the books without the seal of approval, and that was that, because we felt it was the right thing to do. Good man. Good for you, Stan. We like stuff like that. You know, hey, Walt Disney had his Mickey Mouse. Do you have one character that, that really did it for you, one favorite child? Yeah, I guess Spider-Man. It's funny, so often when I'm introduced to people... Um, like if I meet a mother with a little child in the street, she'll say to the kid, oh, by the way, this is Spider-Man. You know, they don't know what to say. <laughs> the kid expects me to crawl on a wall. <laughs> but um, everybody seems to, th if they think of me in terms of anything, it's usually Spider-Man. But Stan, if you would have taken him to like some market research firm 
and you got, I got this great idea for this character I'm going to push. He's Spider-Man. They would have told you people hate spiders. You know, he's not likable. They forget it. Well, not only a research firm, when I first presented it to my publisher, he thought I was crazy because <laughs> I said I want to do something about a superhero called Spider-Man. I want him to be a teenager, and I want him to have a lot of personal problems. So my publisher said, Stan, you cannot call a hero Spider-Man because people hate spiders. You can't make them a teenager because teenagers can only be sidekicks. And you say you want them to have personal problems? Stan, don't you know what a superhero is? And he wouldn't let me do the strip. I had to sneak it into a book once when nobody was looking. <laughs> wow. You know, Bill mentioned Disney a moment ago, Stan. You recently signed a first-look deal with Disney, one of the biggest media companies in the world. Did you ever think that would happen? No, I never did. I, I, it's a funny thing. When I was a kid, Walt Disney was my god. I mean, I must have seen Snow White a dozen times and Pinocchio and Dumbo and Bambi. And I, I just thought Disney could do no wrong. And Fantasia and all of his live-action animal shows on television. And to think that now, in some way, we're, I'm allied with Disney, it, it's really very uh, a source of great satisfaction. How is, is getting older, how is being in your mid-80s different than you thought it was going to be? Well, the only thing is you start getting a lot of physical things. You know, every time you get an ache and pain, you say, oh, geez, here I go. I'm getting arthritis or something. And you begin to be sure you have your doctor's phone number with you. But aside from that, the thing I'm happiest about is I, I seem to have the same energy. And more than that, I think I can work as well or better than I ever did. The ideas keep flowing. So that that encourages me. When I was young, I was afraid when I get older, it would be harder to write. But I find it's easier now than it's ever been. And boy, this whole digital revolution, Stan, it is made for you, is it not, with video games and all that? Oh, yeah. We're working on those and we're working on entertainment for cell phones and just everything that's going on. My new company, POW, we're involved in it. You know, Stan, you have been fabulous. In fact, Bill, I'm going to nominate Stan Lee for one of the top two or three guests we've ever had on the show. Unbelievable. You know, we love your voice, your enthusiasm. <laughs> on top hey guys, of all... Guys, you've made my day. Thanks a million. <laughs> you know, it's, it's payback, Stan. We love what you've done and what you've given to society, and we also love your message, and we're going to keep having you back on again and again if you'll have us, buddy. As often as you want. I never had a better time. You know, Bill, I love the fact that I think he made a cameo appearance in almost every one of the Marvel movies playing some weird character, but it was always fun to see him and say, oh, yeah, that's Stan Lee. And remember when they first started coming out, everyone thought, well, this isn't going to work because these are kids' movies. Mm. These are, But I think it's his enthusiasm, his approach, the things that he thinks are interesting that helped bring that entire genre out of just something that was for a certain group of people and gave it mass appeal. You mentioned enthusiasm, and, and I love that about Stan Lee because a lot of people will come and talk to us when they've got a book. Stan Lee didn't have anything to hype. Stan Lee came to play. You know, he didn't need to talk to Bill and Mark. Stan Lee didn't have to talk to anybody, but but he's excited to share his message and his enthusiasm, you know, not just with what he created, but with life in general. It's a great point. He sounded like and genuinely was having fun 
in his 80s and his 90s, being as, what did he say, he's as more creative than he ever was, telling better stories and really connecting with life. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can, spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies, look out, here comes the Spider-Man. When we come back, how lightening your load can lead to happiness, and we'll also find out what's on Mark's mind. This is Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. a clip from a GB classic. It's from an interview that we did back in 2007. We spoke with Barbara Hillary shortly after she became the first black woman in history to trek to the North Pole on skis and stand on top of the world. And she did it at the age of 75 as a two-time cancer survivor. She had breast cancer in her 20s and lung cancer in her late 60s, resulting in part of her lungs being removed and a dramatic reduction in her lung capacity. And we pick it up with Barbara telling us what led to her historic accomplishment. I became interested and fascinated by northern travel. And uh, within that realm, I photographed polar bears, learned how to dog sled, learned snowmobiling. Wow. And as a natural progression, I started to read more and more about the pole. And with the pole, naturally came... Perry and Matt Henson, uh, for those who may not be acquainted, the first black man to go with Henson and the first black man to go to the North Pole. And as I read it, I said, what's missing from this? Something's missing from this. And bing, <laughs> dummy, it occurred to me. It was you. <laughs> no, 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 no black woman had ever gone to the pole. And that's how I became interested. Tell us what it's like uh, on the top of the world, Barbara, for all the rest of us who, who, haven't, uh, who haven't made the trip yet. What's it like when you get up there? It is incredibly beautiful. It's quiet. It, it's uh, serene. You, you, you feel a, a sense of danger also. It, it, is, it, it, it almost defies description. And, and an overwhelming sense of accomplishment. This is a powerful message for people out there that are in their mid-70s like you and even older, that, that, that you can really do what you want to do, even if that's something like reaching the top of the world in the North Pole. Well, as part of my philosophy, it doesn't start when you're 70. I think you should wake up and realize life is not a dress rehearsal. And whatever you can do within your physical realm, your financial realm, do it. Don't go through life putting off, well, when this happens, I'll do that. That's my philosophy, and that's what works for me. When I realized I was finally on my way to the pole leaving uh, Newark Airport, I'm human, and I did have some reservations, some apprehensions, uh, since part of the lobe was removed from my lung, a lobe rather was removed, I wondered if I could function at uh, temperatures 20 to 40 below zero. 
uh, would I be able to maintain the, the breathing necessary, the quality breathing, and uh, I did it. Well, Aunt Hal, and, and you've inspired all of us. What's next for you? Well, I'd like to back up and, and share with the listening audience. Uh, I spoke about philosophy. I, I think a philosophy helps motivate you. Would you like to know mine? Mind my own business. <laughs> Two, single. <laughs> Three, I'm not reluctant to tell people to go to hell when it's indicated. <laughs> and what I'd like to do next, I'd like to be involved with the lecture circuit. I'd like to talk to groups regarding what I saw, global warming, uh, consciousness raising for people my age. Uh, there's nothing written that being old is, means that you have to be boring to yourself and others. Four years after that interview, at the age of 79, Barbara became the first black woman to reach the South Pole as well. And as she told us she would, she became an inspirational speaker, traveling the world and advocating for women's rights and raising awareness for climate change. Barbara passed away in 2019 at the age of 88. And one year later, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, along with Aretha Franklin and Toni Morrison. A nationally renowned expert at helping us unlock the power of purpose in our lives is Richard Leiter. He's an executive life coach, the founder of InVenture, the purpose company, and a best-selling author. And today he explains how one of the first things we can all do to start changing our own lives is simply lighten the load. Richard, you know a lot about a lot of different things. You've got a lot of great talking points based upon years of experience. Give us, if you will the moral of the story, the, the, the broad strokes takeaway about what's important in life. What have you learned that you wish everybody else knew? What I've learned is that people talk and want to be happy. What is happiness? And um, I have been leading walking safaris in Africa for, the, for 35 years. And I was with a Maasai tribal elder. I was carrying a backpack. He was carrying a spear. And uh, I, he was very curious about what was in my backpack because he saw I was being weighed down and I wasn't enjoying the journey so much. And so I showed, I put my backpack on the ground. I opened it up. I took everything out. And he looked at this pile of stuff in front of him, the wilderness first aid kit, course essential and all this. And he came over as only a good elder could do. And he said, Richard, does all this make you happy? Well, I realized I was carrying a lot more than I needed, and I needed to lighten my load. So I think one of the things that I think is essential to, is to lighten your load, to look at what makes you happy. And part of that is what do you need to unpack and let go of, and what do you need to repack in the future? And so does all this make you happy? Defining that is really essential. And a good life is one way to define that. Are you living in the place you love, with the people you love, doing the things you love, with purpose? What about your bucket list? Are you on it now? And do you have enough to fund it, et cetera? So I think the key question is, does all this make you happy? And what defining what it is, it does make you happy. That's Richard Leiter. And I can tell you this, one thing that makes me happy is when Mark brings up a topic or some information and gives us 
the Growing Boulder perspective on it, and we call it On My Mind. So, Mark, what's up for today? Well, you know, we've talked about this before, Bill. There was a study of the competitors at the National Senior Games several years ago where they found out that the average chronological age of the competitors was 68, but what they called their fitness age was just 45, and fitness age was determined by resting heart rate, the quantity and quality of exercise that they did, and their waist to hip ratio. But a big buzzword these days, I read it all the time, is biological age, which the National Institute on Aging refers to as the age that cells, tissues, and organ systems appear to be based upon our biochemistry. And the idea is that there's a normal way for human cells to age, and at any given age, it's possible to deviate from that norm, either for better or for worse. Uh, and there is growing agreement now among scientists and doctors and geneticists that people can have a biological age that is, in fact, different from their chronological age. And there may now be a more precise way for you to answer the question when people come up to you and say, Bill, how old are you? Are you going to say, well, do you want my chronological age or do you want my biological age? And, and here's what I find interesting about that in many ways, because you read about this all the time. To have a biological age that is younger than your chronological age is to some extent a social privilege. Not everybody has the opportunity to breathe clean air, to drink fresh water, to join a gym, to, uh, you know, hang out and eat good foods and do all of those kinds of things, things that have been proven to change the health of ourselves. So it's an interesting conversation. I find it fascinating. What's your age? I think a lot of people are not going to say, you want my chronological age or my biological age? You know, it's interesting. My mind immediately went to physical activity, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be your stress levels, your inflammation, mm -hmm. you know, in your system. So there are so many factors that go, and this is a great great conversation and one that we all need to be thinking about and, and trying to figure out what can I do to be sure that the days towards the end of my life are as good as they can possibly be. I think the takeaway is that now everybody agrees that we can have a biological age. We've known we could have a fitness age that differs from our chronological age. Now we know, more importantly, we can have a biological age that's different than our chronological age. I love it. That's On My Mind with Mark Middleton, and that's what Growing Boulder is about, to get you to think a little bit differently and approach the rest of your life to help make it the best of your life. The Growing Boulder radio show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied